But we're closing out and uh, the missionary journey here. And um, just let me pick up real quickly at verse 40, um, 48. We, we, that's very close to where we left last week. Because as you know, um, Paul and Barnabas have been moving through the, the area of Galatia. They're about to move to Iconium and, and so on. But this Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, is where they ran into a buzzsaw, which we covered pretty much last week. And when the Gentiles heard this, and what they're, when they say this, the quotation from Isaiah 49.6, which is what uh, Luke says, this, this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is a quotation mark. This is a very important sentence. That is a quotation from Isaiah 49 that refers to Messiah. But what Luke is doing, what Paul is doing, is saying we are continuing the Messianic work of being a light to the Gentiles. And when Paul, I'm sorry, when Matthew introduces the Galilean ministry of Jesus in Matthew, the very end of Matthew chapter 4, he quotes this verse. So again, Jesus begins to minister to uh, the Galilee region, and farther north you go, which include a lot of Gentiles, and Paul's now continuing that. And that's the way in which Luke wants us to see it. The acts of the apostles are the continuation of Jesus' work. Yes? So, so just to be clear, the you in that verse, in that quote, is about Jesus. About it is, that's, that's right. It is a reference to the Messiah as a prophecy from Isaiah 49. But as, as I tried to, to suggest, what, what Paul and Barnabas, and that is how Luke wants us to see it, and, and I think that is the right way to see it, that the, the, the ministry of going to the Gentiles is continuing what Jesus started. And that's the fourth phase of Acts 1-8. Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. I haven't, made, I haven't confused you here, have I? I just want to make sure that you see what, he's, what they're doing there. The book of Acts is, is documenting the continuing work of Christ. Miracles they're doing are messianic miracles. Proclamation of the gospel is continuing what Jesus had begun. So if you went back to when Saul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, Isaiah 49, or 49.6 would apply right Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, it's, it's this, this continuous work is what Luke is trying to document. Begins with the Gospel of Luke, continues with the book of Acts. That's just an important point that Luke makes. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, which we covered last week. I'm not dealing with it this week. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district, the district of Antioch and Pisidia. But they shook off the dust from their feet again and went on to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples there is referring not to Paul and Barnabas, but to the disciples that had come to know Christ in this district. They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And obviously Paul and Barnabas are too, but it's referring to the disciples there. It's referring to the people that are now disciples of Christ that have come to know him in this region. 
One of the things that it's, it's to a degree still true today, but it was very much true there, is, and Luke does such a wonderful job of documenting this, there is acceptance of the message of the gospel, but there's also intense resistance to the gospel. And that's, remember what Jesus said, I will divide. I will divide people, I'll divide friendships, I'll divide families, I'll divide communities. Because the gospel forces people to choose. And so what the leaders of the synagogue there did was stirred up people, and it was successful from that vantage point of driving them out of the district. Where did they get, where did they get the idea shaking the dust off their feet and going, where did they get that? Jesus sent out the, the 12 initially. Good. Yeah. That's exactly what Jesus said. That, that's what Jesus said. Your, your strategy is if they do not accept you and accept more specifically the message, move on. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how long, in this case, they were in this area? Uh, well, they were in Pisidian Antioch several weeks. because It mentioned a couple Sabbaths. So they were there several weeks, but now they move on. And now chapter 14 finishes the missionary journey, but it's going to conclude with Lystra, which we'll get to in a minute. But if you're following on your map, and I don't know if you are the one that's on page five there, Iconium is to the east, basically almost due east, uh, somewhere close to 90 miles to the east of Iconium in Pisidia. They entered the city uh, together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks. um, Remember, we had seen that earlier. When Luke uses the term Greeks, what he means is Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. Remember that? I mean, just clear on that. That's what he means by that, believed. So, I mean, you have, again, he goes, it's was his strategy. The first thing I do when I go into a town is I go to the synagogue. <clears throat> and in that synagogue, I, we don't have a specific number, but he says a great number of both Jews and, um, and Greeks. In other words, proselytes believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they left the city. I just want to make sure you're with me because that's not right. But I'm thinking nobody's responding. I'm thinking maybe they're reading a different Bible than I have. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders. And remember, there are the messianic miracles to be done by their hands. But the people were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. The word divided there in Greek is schism, S-C-H-I-S-M. That's, you all heard that word before. But again, here you see the same point I made a couple minutes ago, and Luke is making it again. The gospel divides people. Some will accept it, some will reject it. And you have, this is just a, a, a brief comment, but here you have some with the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. So here, Barnabas is called an apostle. Barnabas is considered an apostle, meaning a divinely sent out one commissioned with the authority of Christ. Uh, That's just a little uh, nuance there that I think it's important. When an attempt was made by both the Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them, 
and mistreat, is physically mistreat them, and to stone them, <laughs> which is a Jewish form of execution. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, sisters of Lacaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Doesn't tell, Luke doesn't tell us how long they're there, but they did not, despite the challenge of, 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 of the persecution against it, they continued. And now it's beginning so tense that they leave. You know, one thing I think is encouraging to us as believers is that uh, 52 says, and the disciples were continually filled. Not just, you know, a couple of gallons here. They were filled (laughs) with joy and with the Holy Spirit confirming their ministry, which, I mean, that's all we need. Absolutely. That's a great way to uh, say that, Fred. That would have been encouraging to Paul and Barnabas to see that. See that regardless of the opposition, those people who would become disciples of Christ are filled with joy and with this Holy Spirit. That's you know, that's very important, very encouraging. Now, Lystra, I want to spend some time here because this is a very this is a very significant uh, and it's really the last major event of the first missionary journey. Lystra, they're kind of going back now. They're going west about twenty miles or so. Lister's in a valley, and um, it was kind of an important city. Had a pretty large temple to Zeus there. And here, listen carefully to this sentence. Here you see Paul confront the worldview of the Greek, Roman, Greco-Roman people. Because you see how they, that is the people of Lister, perceive what's going on. They're reading it, perceiving it, understanding it through their worldview. And then how Paul and Barnabas respond to that. It's, it's masterful how Paul deals with this. So let's get the narrative read. Let's, let's look at what it says. And now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. Let's stop there for a moment. Looking intently, that is a phrase that was used in Greek literature of the gods. The gods looking intently on people. Now, I I want to talk a bit about that because... I wish I had a board here, but um, <clears throat> Greek Roman mythology. Do you know what I mean by that? Greek Roman mythology. Have you ever uh, read some of that stuff? Have any of you ever read uh, Homer's Iliad and Honest Odyssey? Okay. Um, what? Huh? It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, often in college or sometimes in high school literature courses, you read that. I, I want to talk about this, so give me a couple of minutes and do the best you can to listen if you're interested. The Greeks and the Romans, because basically the Romans just took the same mythological tales and multiple gods as the Greeks did and just changed their names. Like Zeus is the chief god of the Greek pantheon. The Romans accept they just changed his name to Jupiter. And Aphrodite, who is the goddess of carnal love, they keep her with all her attributes and just change her name to Venus. 
maybe that's more than you need to know. But what, I, what I'm saying is the Greek and Roman people believed that the world was filled with gods and that every natural force, the winds, the sun, the planets, uh, uh, thunder, lightning, all are attributed to a god. And they believed um, that the gods did not have humans' interest in heart. They weren't interested in, in making life easy for the humans. They, the, the gods of the Greek, Greek and Roman pantheon of God were just like large humans. <laughs> I mean, they, it, when you see the statues that they make, and they make multiple statues, both in the Greek and, and Roman era, they're, just, they're, they're like supermen, superwomen. Strong, muscular, and powerful, but they have exactly the same foibles and, and struggles as humans. They lust after one another. They commit adultery. They murder. And, and in the way in which they looked at their world, as the gods are fighting one another in disputes or angry with one another, who suffers? Humans do. So this whole idea that is so central to genuine biblical Christianity that God is one and God is good and God is just was a totally foreign idea to the Greek and Roman people. And so something happens and they have to figure out, what did we do to make the gods angry at us? And so they'd offer sacrifices to the gods and, and uh, do all kinds of things to placate and, and make them happy again. And it's, Paul is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into that kind of a world. And so when you see what happens at Lystra, you see two things. You see how these Greek-Roman people process things that are happening in their world, and then how Paul is going to take that and respond to it. He's going to build the case for the one true, only living God and his son Jesus Christ. And I want you to watch how he tries to do this with these people. So he's looking intently, and he sees that he, this is the man who's been lame since birth. He sees that he has faith. Now, the only thing we can conclude there, that it doesn't specifically say this, but the, the Holy Spirit must have given Paul that insight, because he can't look into Fred's heart and say, I see he has faith. Only God can do that. But that in some way, the Lord helped him to see and understand this. So Paul responds. When he sees this man has faith, he's listening to Paul's words. He's listening to the gospel. He's listening to the presentation of who the one true and only living God is. And the Holy Spirit allows Paul to understand this man has faith. Faith that can be acted upon. So in verse 10, Paul says in a loud voice. Now that's important. Everybody's going to hear that. Everybody that is around Paul and listening to him teach is going to hear that. And what does he say? Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, I've used this phrase a lot in our study of Acts, but this is a messianic miracle. This is, again, this is what the, 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 what the apostles are doing in these early, are just continuing the work of Jesus, both in preaching his word and doing his works to validate the truth of the gospel. And so you now have messianic teaching, meaning that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the core of the gospel, and, so on, and you have messianic miracles. Which are an example. Yes, right. 
of his grace and how he's allowed to change things. Right. And I mean, to make things well, to make things right, and so on. So it's the power of Messiah that's being used, but it's to prove, again, just like Jesus, because Jesus did miracles like this. People have been lame from birth. Jesus, you know, uh, raises them up and think down at uh, the. You know, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's just, this is evidence. God, does, you know, I think I've, you heard me say, God never does a miracle show off. It is with an intent and a purpose. It's to draw attention to the truth of who Jesus is and whom Paul and, and Barnabas represent. Okay, now, how, okay, he, they've seen this. He said it with a loud voice, so everybody heard what he said, and now they see this man whom they had known crippled from birth walking around Lystra. So we see that the crowds respond. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in... Uh, Lycaonian, that's the dialect, that's all that means that the people speak there. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now for you and me, that's, that's a ludicrous thing to say. But in their worldview, they believed that that happened a lot. And so they then assign a name. Barnabas is Zeus. And Paul is Hermes. Now, Hermes um, was, among other things, Hermes, uh, the Romans give Hermes the name Mercury. But Hermes is the god of interpretation, the messenger god. Hermes, what word do we get from Hermes? Hermeneutics, that's right. So you can, you know, Paul's the one speaking, representing the power of Zeus. So Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul's Hermes, the messenger, declaring the message. So in the Greek and Roman way of thinking, that's logical. For you and me, it's good. The gods, so it's just this kind of, their worldview is processing through what they see, and they conclude, one guy's Zeus, and one guy's Hermes. The guy speaking and declaring word, he's Hermes, he's the messenger, and Zeus is the head of the gods. And as I mentioned, um, I think I mentioned this a moment ago, there was a huge temple of Zeus in Lystra. So the pre, verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, the gates of the temple, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. That's a logical thing to do. The gods have visited us. They did a miracle. Let's sacrifice to them. So, I mean, here you have the Greek and Roman way of looking at things, smashing into the truth. This misunderstanding the truth. Yeah, so what's Paul going to do with this? How's Paul going to handle this? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, this is really quite wonderful, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you. But we bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things. That's a great translation, vain. Empty, silly things to a living God. A God who is alive and a God who's the creator. Notice what he says. A living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
over and over and over again in the Bible, almost whatever is being discussed about God, whether it's in the Psalms, which are hymns, or whether it's Paul's defense of general biblical Christianity in Romans chapter 1 through 3, etc., they begin with one central fact. God's the creator of all things. Not only that God is the redeemer and savior and loves you, but God is the creator. And that's what he's doing here. He's a living God. He's alive. And he's the creator. Because you see, the Greeks and Romans, as I told you a moment ago, they believed in men. They're, they're radical polytheists, many, many gods. And each, everything that happens and each act that they can't explain, they assign to a god. I can't explain this. Well, some god did this. I can't explain the winds. God is a god of the wind. And when he gets angry, the winds blow. And Zeus, who always was often, not always, often pictured with a thunderbolt, lightning bolt in his hand. When, when severe lightning came, that's Zeus up there in heaven throwing these lightning bolts at us. He's really angry because they can't explain it. So they assign it to some god. And Paul is, Paul is issuing an enormous corrective to their thinking. There's one living God, the Greek word is theos, one God who's the creator. You don't have multiple gods pulling off, creating this and creating this and creating this and creating this. One God who created everything. And Paul makes it clear. Heaven, earth, sea, and all that is in them, meaning all life. So everything owes its existence to one God who is alive. Okay, now listen. Again, I wish I had a board here. What Paul is first of all stating is general revelation. Did you ever hear that phrase? Okay, a couple of you have, a couple of you haven't. In theology, we say God has revealed himself in four ways. In creation and in conscience, that's general revelation. In his moral law and in Jesus, that's specific revelation. So what Paul is saying is this living God, this God who is alive, singular, who created all things, in past generations, verse 16, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying, but he's, he's a God who, because of who humans are and what humans have chosen to do, if they choose to rebel against him, he allows their free will choice to work itself out. But, verse 17, he always has had a witness, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Now, if God is the creator of all things and he's a living God, is that a witness? Yes. So what Paul is, Paul, I know you don't think the way I think because I'm trained in all this stuff, went to school and all that, but this is an important concept for you to try to understand because the Apostle Paul does this all the time in the sermons and addresses we have recorded in the book of Acts. He tries to move people from understanding general revelation to understanding specific revelation. And what Paul is saying is, he created everything, but he did not force you to love him. 
But if, if people chose to f- rebel against him, he always had a witness of who he is. He always leaves for himself a witness. So the witness is creation. The witness is his ordered, structured world. Now listen, a world which manifests his common grace. And he gives an example, continuing verse 17. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, he's not only alive, and he's not only the creator, despite your rebellion against him, he has showered you with his grace and his goodness. How do I know that? The rains that come, the sunlight that shines, because rain and sunlight are necessary for food. And if you are eating food, you are a beneficiary of his grace. Now I'm putting I'm putting it in theological terms, but this is this is an, in two sentences. This is an incredible message to these pagan polytheistic people in Greece and Rome. I mean, in the Greek Greco-Roman world, the gods that you worship and serve are false gods. I represent the living God, who's the Creator, and He's a God of grace, and He's good. How do I know He's a God of grace? He's blessed you with all of the necessities for sustaining life. Did any of you ever see the, uh, it's an older movie, but it was one of my favorites for a while, Jimmy Stewart's movie, Shenandoah? No. There's usually somebody that's seen it. Well, it's, um, he, he lives with his family in the western part of Virginia. He has a big farm and all of that. He has four sons. And the movie begins, they're completing their harvest and all that. Sit down to this big meal and Jimmy Stewart prays. Thank you, Lord, although we planted and we watered and we took care and we harvested on and all these things that they did, we still thank you for our food. <laughs> That's not quite the right prayer to have at, at, at dinner time. But Jimmy Stewart's missing the whole point in that very, very humorous prayer in his role that he's playing as the father of a big family with a big farm for the Civil War. And he's, he's just saying, but you know, that's where he's making the mistake in his prayer and what Paul is drawing their attention to. You plant the corn, but you plant it in soil that God created. You didn't make the soil. He made the soil. And he made soil that has certain nutrients in it that are necessary for productive growth of food that you depend on. And he sends you sun, which is absolutely necessary for food. And he sends you rain, which is absolutely necessary. You see what he's doing? He's trying to force them to think about everything around them in a different way. It isn't the gods who are furious and angry with you. I represent the one true God who's living, who created all things, and you benefit him from his incredible abundant grace, and that shows he's good. And that's why 
you, you are glad, you are happy with all of the provision that he has provided for you. And his bottom line is, that is a witness as to who he is. Yeah. And it's, 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 the kind of, it's the kind of statement that is very powerful to use, and, and missionaries did that all the time in the history of missions. When you go into a pagan society that has never heard of Jesus Christ, you start with general revelation. Because every society in some way worships, worships something that's associated with their world and what they have. And so Paul is just saying, I'm here representing the one true and only God. And you know that because of what he created, what he's done for you in his grace, and everything you enjoy is from his good hand, whether you acknowledge it or not. I'm here to explain who he is. Paul will do exactly the same thing when he's in Acts 17, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, uh, when he's speaking to the philosophers. He doesn't quote from the law. He doesn't quote from Moses. He quotes from the philosophers that they knew about and said, what your philosophers are saying here is completely explained by the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Okay, now I wanted to take a minute to help you to see the masterful way in which Paul is handling this. It's an incredible teachable moment. They've seen a miracle. They're trying to explain the miracle through their worldview, and Paul said, you're missing the whole point of what's really going on here. Well, one seems very practical and relatable, too, just by the masses. Whereas you mentioned earlier in your comments that the gods were like capricious, mm. arbitrary, and Very things so. would just go. And they had no way of relating to these gods because they had no control over them. And yet the things in everyday life that they could see, like you talk about the, the soil, even the kernel of corn, where did that come from? And, and the rain and the photosynthesis of you know, the sun and all of that. That uh, so you're saying that could be a general platform for sharing the gospel with people of any kind if we visit their world and not a world of gods that are not relatable. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And it's uh, today uh, there's a movement within science. Uh, it's hardly the majority report at all, but there's a movement in science, and not everybody's a Christian who's involved in it, but it's called intelligent design. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But, I mean, there are strong Christians that are part of that movement, but there are also people that are not Christians. And, re- and this, is what the, this is the basic argument of that position. What we see in the physical world cannot be explained by random chance, because that's, that's the, the heart of the evolutionary hypothesis. There is no God, there's no designer, we are all a product of, of chance. And it's just things that, the billiard balls lined up in such a way that we're here. It's randomness. And several scientists are saying, again, some are believers, some are not, they're just saying, that can't explain everything we see. It's just, it doesn't explain it. 
just the human odds, just using mathematical odds, make that almost impossible that that would occur. You know, whether you're talking about the exact precise tilt of the Earth as it, you know, as it, as it rotates and revolves, you know, rotates and revolves, it's moving at the same time. They said, that, that just can't, well, that's just, it happened. <laughs> well, yeah, it happened, but what are the odds of that occurring randomly? And what are the odds that just the right kind of atmosphere would develop on that planet, which is the right balance of oxygen and nitrogen, so that we can breathe it and it can sustain life? I mean, it's just, it's and a, a guy at Lehigh University back east, he wrote a book called Barwin's Black Box, and he's saying, I'm st he's a molecular biologist, I study the cell, and a phrase he uses, the irreducible complexity of the cell makes it impossible that that could just happen. And so they're saying, without necessarily, some say it's God, but they're saying somehow we have to factor into what we see and observe and study in science. There's got to be some kind of designer to this. This just can't happen randomly. Because at the <coughs> base, bottom line of the evolutionary hypothesis is randomness. And there's just men and women in science are starting to push back on that and say, that can't explain this. It's, there's two, there, mathematically, it's just impossible for this to have happened, just by chance. Randomness is chaos. Yeah, I mean, that's it. In any area of our lives, randomness produces chaos, not order. But see, that's, well, but, that, this is, but that's the singular event of science. Never happened before, will never happen again, but it did this time. You know, you think, and it's like one guy at one time said, which takes more faith to really believe? That an intelligent designer who's revealed himself in Scripture did it, or randomness in a singular event that mathematically is almost impossible. But that's what happened, they say. So, I mean, you, you get back to this, this, this issue of everything around us is a witness, it's the word Paul uses, is a witness to the existence of God. What are you going to do with that? Well, I, I, just, I just finished a book, and I, can I tell you this, because it it's one of those books that, oh my goodness, am I ever glad I read this, just came out a couple weeks ago by a guy named Jaden Davison Hunter. He's a Christian at the University of Virginia called Science and the Good. And he and another guy, a colleague of his, wrote the book. They're Christians, but they're saying, and they, it's an incredible book. Science, we've benefited so much from it, but science cannot give us an ethical standard for living. That's right. Absolutely. They can study it, whether you're in psychology or psychiatry or sociology or the hard sciences or whatever. Science can explain why people do certain things, but science never gives you an ethical standard by which you live. And, I, and they really, they go through all the philosophers and scientists throughout all of history. And that's the big, that's the big struggle. What's the ethical standard by which humans should live? Because the result of most people is, is an, a utilitarian approach. You do... You do what is good for the for the most people. 
end justifies the means. That kind of thinking, and as these guys show, that's just that's a disastrous way to construct an ethical system. So what's the only answer? There's something outside of us that gives us an ethical standard, and that is God, who's revealed himself in his moral law, which is a very helpful ethical standard by which to live. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting beyond, but it was, I'm so excited after I read that book. Mm-hmm. I shared it with Peggy, and she's there. Yeah, that really sounds good, honey. <laughs> <right? laughs> well, 11 o'clock at night, I don't know. <laughs> Question yeah. 14, where it says uh, they tore their garments. What, I mean, it's just, what does that mean, really? I mean, is there anything to that? Is there some symbolism in that? They tore their garments. They were trying to prove their humanness. That could be that practical. But that was often in the ancient world an issue of remorse and mourning. I mean, that remorse in the sense that don't conclude. That we're Zeus and Hermes. We're mere men, and as Fred just said, it shows you tear the garments to show. But I I think it it is really a sign of remorse. It's a very normal sign in the ancient, and to some extent, even today, you know, in in some uh, some cultures. But I don't know if I answered your question. uh, Yeah, I just didn't know that. Yeah. Would they? Would you say that they were alarmed? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd, they're coming unglued, and they really want to show it to right. the people. So. Look at verse 18. I'm looking forward to hearing you explain that. Should it have started, that 18 should it have started with but? Yes. Okay. But, even with these words, they scarcely retain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Everything that happened, they still... They still want to sacrifice to the God. <clears throat> what happens? Lystra is the tragic turning point of the first missionary journey. Now, verse 19, here's Woody's favorite word. But <laughs> Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. There are the cities that they had just been. Antioch of the city, Iconium. What does that tell us? And by the way, when Luke uses the word Jews, he doesn't mean every Jew. He's talking about the leaders. What does that tell us? If they're coming from Antioch, they're following Paul around. They're following Paul around. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Now, again, we're in Lystra, supposing that he was dead. 